13 and 14. And then uh, you uh, take uh, Matthew 22 and verse 30. And then let's see, uh, uh, we've got all the way around. I'll take uh, Luke 20 and 34 through 38. Okay. Excuse me one second, Paul. If, if, if you would, uh, uh, I, I would you know, the only thing, are you starting to take that now? Yeah, it's already starting now. Well, what I was going to say, really, uh, without the introduction, like of what we had last week, and uh, and then what we just, you know, like the going off, when he turns back, it won't be the same thing. But you know, Paul, the only, you may, could, could you review briefly enough without just recovering it because Joe and Melinda were not here either, right? I thought they were last week. Uh, oh, okay. That's why I just went so, over that. Okay. It, you know, if, it, if you could do it, I know you can't go into the same amount of detail, but if you could just briefly. Okay. Maybe. Because he wouldn't, because what here, uh, in other words, what we're actually doing tonight is proving some assertions that were made. In other words, we went over it. But last week, from a standpoint of the overall understanding and everything like that, uh, was, you know, essential to, you know, coming into this, really, uh, on the thing. Uh, what we started on last week, Joe, was uh, the subject, the providence of God, and how God goes about bringing his will and so just like I said earlier that that uh, in uh, Romans 8 verse 28 it says God causes all things to work together for good for those that love him for whom he foreknew he predestined to become heirs of eternal salvation whom he predestined he also called whom he called he justified and if God be with us who can be against us and so the assertion of Paul there is that God in the realm of providence causes, works things together for the good of those that love him. And then it speaks of those that love him as people that he foreknows. And as a result of his foreknowledge, he predetermines in advance. Okay? In that context, we found out that this doesn't mean that bad things can't happen to you if you're a lover of God. Paul goes on to say that sickness and, and distress and prison and all that kind of stuff and even death can happen to you, but he said it won't separate you from the love of Christ. And so the, the people of God are here, and they suffer the same things that everybody else suffers, uh, because everybody has free choice. And the Christians have free choice. But God exercises providential care in a sense that those people that God knows he knows their heart, and he knows they're seeking truth. He makes a promise, seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be open, ask and ye shall receive. God exercises care over them, and at least keeps them from being killed, and, and, and protects them to the extent that they can actually find the truth that he makes accessible to them, and then allows them to develop to however degree that he wants to allow them to develop here on this earth. And if there's somebody that God wants to use in a special way, that God can give him providential care and protect him until he's used him, you know, in, in his fullest sense. And a good example was the apostles, that God used them. And then after they were used, he allowed each one of them to be put to death. John's the only one who went to a natural death. Jesus is an example. Uh, God gave providential care and we read several times where they tried to kill Jesus, but his time had not yet come. And then, when he had accomplished his ministry, he had lived his life, he had taught the teaching, God just simply stepped out of the way, and then they went ahead and did what they wanted. And so, all the way through, where it's people making good decisions or bad decisions, God in no way ever influences or interferes with that decision process. He does not get in anybody's mind and cause them to make a good decision, nor does he make a, cause them to make a bad decision. In fact, if you think about it, if I make good decisions in life because God in some mysterious way is in me and caused me to do it, what glory is that to God? You know, that doesn't really prove anything uh, about uh, God's will or anything like that. On the other hand, if I make bad decisions, because the old devil supposedly is in me, well then why blame me? Why am I at fault? Uh, but the truth is that I don't. I make either good or bad decisions on my own. 
and God tries to influence through information. And then there's temptations out there on, on the other side dealing with our flesh and all. But anyway, God operates with his perfect knowledge and he can bring things about. And one of the ways he does it is uh, through his control of the elements. And specifically, we're going to deal tonight with angels as tools that God uses. Uh, in other words, that when he makes a promise, seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be open, ask and ye shall receive. Everybody that seeks find, everybody that knocks has it open. There is absolutely no way that Jesus can make a promise like that unless he's going to in some way uh, stand behind it. Uh, that, uh, what I mean is you might, if he's not going to stand behind it, you could have some devout, sincere individual that's really seeking and he's killed before he ever comes to a knowledge of truth that leads to his salvation or anything like that. And uh, a thing that we dealt with last week, a problem was, you know, people talk about this. It used to bother me on the thing that, what about this guy that is ungodly and is killed in a car wreck or through a disease or something at 22 or 23 years of age and he dies in an ungodly state? Another person is ungodly up until he's, say, 45, and then he repents and becomes a Christian. Well, then somebody could very well say, well, this guy that was killed at 18 or 22, is that really fair? Maybe he would have repented if he'd lived to be 45. Okay, if, if, if you're looking at it from a standpoint of chance, uh, God becomes almost a respecter of persons, because this guy got to live to 45, and this guy didn't. But God has made a promise that everybody that's seeking that's fine. So that means that this person down here at 17 or 16 or 15 that is honestly seeking and has a heart that will do what's right when he finds it or that whenever it's proven to him that his way is wrong. A lot of times we like the prodigal son, we've got to make a lot of mistakes to find out our way is wrong. But this guy that has a, a heart that once it's proven to him that God's way is the only way that's right that he's actually willing to be honest with it and will respond to it and all, God knows that person. And he has God's providential care. In other words, I'm saying the guy that obeyed the gospel at 45, God knew him at 16 or 15 or whatever. This guy that was killed at 18 in an ungodly state or 22 in an ungodly state, I don't believe he'd obey the gospel if he lived to be 150. God, God knows his heart. And so the question then, how does God give that providential care and then on the, uh, so far as the punishment of the wicked, we've seen that really God doesn't do anything, have to do anything in a miraculous way. They reap the consequence of their own sins and the sins of society. In other words, if, if you're a wicked person, God doesn't have to do anything in any miraculous way or something like that. Number one, sooner or later you're going to die. But even before a natural death, the more wicked you are, the more apt you are to be killed along the way or be thrown in prison or something, something like that. And so that the wickedness of, as the prophet would say, the wickedness of the wicked, you know, serve, serve to correct them. But God's position is that he has to give providential care to this person that he knows will respond to him so that that person can have the opportunity to save his soul and then to mature and develop in a spiritual way and prepare himself for eternity. And God's hand is out there all the time for anyone, but his providential care is over those that he knows will actually accept uh, and respond to respond to his truth. Well then, at the end of the lesson, we began to look at the tools that God uses in his providential care. And we noted that as being the angels. And so what we're going to do in these verses is read some things about the, the angels themselves. Okay, let's see. Uh, if, if, if you would, I, I was getting that ready. Maybe you just get off those uh, chapters and verses. Uh, say the way as you get ready to do it. Okay, re repeat your chapter and verse uh, as you're getting into it. Okay. Uh, excuse me. The passages that we read last week, like in Hebrews, where the angels are ministering servants to. Yeah, that's on here. I'm saying, could you give some of if you're not going to cover them tonight? Could you just give some of them for who's been a friend since then? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead and get some of them. yeah, we'll get to that as we go through it. It'll cover it when we get to it. Okay, uh, let's see, who died? Steve, did you have the first one? Psalm 148, verses 2 and 5. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. 
Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Okay. The statement there is that, that here you have all the hosts and the angels that are praising God, along with everything else. Well, then the question is, why praise God? And he said he commanded and they were created. And so we learn in that psalm that angels were created by God. And of course we could, you know, we'd know that'd have to be anyway, but anyway, a plain statement that the reason that everything ought to praise God is that God created everything and God created the angels. Now, the next thing we want to do is show that the angels that are created, that they have, they're free moral agents. They're not robots either, and they have a choice. And so here in 2 Peter 2, 4, and also in Jude 6, but I believe the passage we're going to use is 2 Peter 2, 4, Jude 6, when you parallel, we'll speak of angels that made a choice to rebel against God. Okay, Tim, would you read that? 2 Peter 2 and verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. Okay, now, where it says sent them to hell, that really, in the uh, Greek, is Tartarus. T-A-R-T-A-R-U-S. And the King James translator started a process, and some of the others still copy because people are used to it. And that is they take these three words, Tartarus and Hades and Gehenna, and translate them all with this one word, hell. Okay? Hades is a Greek word that means place of disembodied spirits. The place where you're, it's a spiritual realm, where you go after death. Uh, the rich man that you read about in Luke 16 uh, was in Hades. And just, uh, and, but we all head in, head in Hades. All right, now Hades is divided up into two realms. One realm referred to as paradise, like he said to the thief on the cross, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. And the Jew understood paradise is that part of the Hadean world that was the abode of God. And paradise is, is an old Persian word that means the Garden of Eden. And since that was the best things in man's history, it became symbolic of the abode with God. All right, now, Tartarus is that part of Hades where spirits are cast that are separated from God. An example of that would be uh, the rich man, in the story of the rich man in Lazarus, who is in the Hadean realm, but then there's a, a chasm separating him uh, from, La from Lazarus and also from Abraham. Well, now he speaks of angels that have been cast into Tartarus. And so angels rebel against God, and all it means of that word Tartarus, they were in that spiritual realm, they've been separated from God. And that's all it is. They've been separated from God as a result of it. All right, now, turn to Job 1. Oh, let's see, Barbara, did you have that? Did I give that somebody? Job 1 and 6 through 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Has thou not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth thy hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse thee to thy face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. All right, and notice what we've already covered. We said the angels were created by God, just like, just like man was made in the image of God. The angels had free choice. Some made a choice to rebel against God. Satan is simply a word that means adversary. Okay, and that's all it means. So the sons of God in Job come to present themselves. And so here are the spiritual beings, and Satan also came. So here is, here is one that has become an adversary of God, and he comes. Well, what God does, God could have destroyed the one we know as Satan. He did. In fact, we're going to see that angels are immortal. They're eternal, just like our spirits are. And so God has created man after he's created angels. And after some angels have rebelled against him, 
Then he creates man here on this earth. And man, to the extent that he of his own free will comes to the conclusion that God's way is right in and of itself, uh, that it, something isn't right just because God says so, but God says so because it's right. Well, then God is glorified. And so what God does is he points out to Satan. He says, have you looked at Job? Well, see, the beauty of a, a human being that chooses what's right is that God's not forcing him to do it. And God has put us in a physical realm where we cannot see into the spiritual. And, it's, and there's a reason. that If we could literally see God, we would be intimidated to the extent that you would do what's right, not because you believe it was right, but simply because of the intimidation process itself. Not only that, we could not be an example to angels that did rebel. You know, the, the fact that, that if we were intimidated, in fact, notice what Job tries to do. When God, uh, or I should say Satan, whenever God talks about how good Job is, Satan right away responds and says, well, big deal. You know, you put a hedge about him. You crossed him. He said, in other words, it's only because you've made him so rich and prosperous. He says, let me take some out of way. Let me touch him and he'll curse you. Well, then Job unfolds. And notice then, Satan, unbeknownst to Job, is able to do things. Now, he can't take his life. Notice we said in the providential care of uh, God that the life is what God is concerned with. Well, Satan is able to afflict Job in various ways, but he can't take his life. In other words, there's a limit to what he can do, and God has that limit. And so there are certain forces that, and God doesn't bother to explain all that. But Job maintains his faithfulness to God. And in doing that, he says something very strong. He says that, that when he makes statements like, naked I came, naked I'll go, glory be the name of God, he is recognizing that God is the supreme being, God is the creator, that you and I are the potter, we, I mean, you and I are the clay, he's the potter, that we don't have the right to sit back and challenge the creator and evaluate him, that whatever he does is right. And not only that, that, that everything that, is, that, that he's got that is good and all has come about from God, and that God's way is right, and it's just literally foolish to challenge him. And so Job, unbeknownst, keep in mind, we read the story, and we know the whole setting. But Job didn't know about the fact that God had pointed him out to Satan and all. And he didn't know that as he stood up under those trials and afflictions and maintained his integrity and his faith in God, that he was being given an opportunity to glorify God and also being used by God as a demonstration and proof of his will before even angelic powers. And then God also is going to use Job to teach some things to some people there on the scene. But that's not our purpose for tonight. So we've seen that angels are created by God. They've got free choice. Uh, they're in the spiritual realm. Uh, some made a choice to rebel against God. And then, but God didn't destroy them. He's created man here on this earth. And man is part of a demonstration. And we've seen that, that uh, so far as the devil and his angels, there are certain powers that God allows them to have, so far as this earth is concerned. But God limits uh, the powers themselves. And in no way does God allow man's free choice or thinking to be interfered with. Now, what we want to note now is, is the angels that did not rebel against God in the function that they serve in God's providential care uh, over his people. Now in Psalms 103 and verse 19 through 22. Psalms 103, 19 through 22. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obey, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts. All right, notice you, what he says. You who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Okay, everybody that serves God, and specifically we're zeroing in on angels, and he said the angels, he refers to them as mighty, and that they perform and carry out the word of God. So angels, and by the way, this whole thing of, of little winged beings flop around and hold with harps up in the sky, that uh, I don't know where that come from, but it doesn't come from the Bible. That the angels are uh, ministering spirits. In fact, uh, did I give somebody Hebrews 1, 13, 14? Mm -hmm. 
you got it. All right, go ahead and read that. Hebrews 1, 13 and 14, and then we'll go back to the other. Okay, 13. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And not all are not all angels ministering spirits to serve those who will inherit salvation? Okay. So, angels are ministering spirits for those of us that will inherit salvation. And in the psalmist, the Psalms 103 says that their job, they are mighty, and their function is to carry out God's word. And so, angels, just like we've been, we're in the physical realm, the difference between us and an angel is that we're in this physical body. We're a spiritual being in a physical body. The angels are spiritual beings in the spiritual realm, and they're in a higher realm than, than we are. And they are, from our standpoint, functioning to carry out the will of God, and specifically, they are ministers to us. And we've noted that they are ministers from the standpoint of God's providential care and bringing about things in accomplishment of the will of God without tampering with man's free will here on this earth. Now note the next passage, uh, Matthew 18 and verse 10. Say that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that there are angels in heaven. I always see the face of my Father in heaven. Okay, notice that, uh, by the way, the little ones there were, you know, the people, the disciples of Jesus. And he spoke of them as having angels that cared for them. And so, in reference to anybody that would try to harm them in any way, uh, there was the there was a statement by Jesus that they had angels that cared for them that were you know before the presence of God. All right, now carry that a step further so far as this angelic uh, uh, concern and care. Remember when Jesus uh, was going to be crucified, his statement that he could call on twelve legions of angels. In other words, he made it clear that. The only reason he was being crucified is they were doing it of their free will, but God was permitting it. That if God wanted to interfere, that he could. And if he decided to interfere, the way he'd do it with, with his angels. All right, remember now after uh, the resurrection, an angel rolled the stone, stone away. Uh, when the, when uh, they came to the tomb, the, the women, it was an angel you know, that was there and announced to them first uh, what had happened. Uh, remember, even at the birth of Jesus and John the Baptist, it was an angel, the angel Gabriel, that announced each time the birth of John and, and then the birth, birth of Jesus. And so we have, uh, after Jesus in Matthew 4 was tempted by Satan, it was the angels that went out and ministered to him, you know, after that temptation. Uh, one of the verses that the devil quoted when he tempted Jesus, uh, he tried to say, if you are the Son of God, then cast yourself down because it's written, the angels, you know, have been given charge over you. And he actually quoted from Psalms 91, verses 11 and 12, where God speaks of the angels' providential care. And notice now, Jesus said something that will help us out. He said, it's also written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. In other words, that just because that those people who love God and are striving to carry out his will have the promise of the angelic providential care and all, this does not mean that they have the right to go around and, and do things to tempt God, like these uh, crazy people that play with snakes. Well, according to Jesus, that would be tempting God. That when, when he made this statement about, you know, the providential care, and you don't have to worry about such and such and such at the end of the mark, he was not telling them to go out and play with snakes and, and willfully jeopardize yourself and things like that. But he's saying, if you do all you can, God will take care of the things that you can't. You know, and then that was the, and, and Jesus made that clear there that you simply don't tempt God, and He made He made it clear to Satan. Okay, now what we've covered so far then is that in Matthew 18 and verse 10, that angels are there on behalf of of those of us that are believers, and they watch out over us. Uh, Hebrews 1, 13 and 14, angels are ministering spirits for those of us that will inherit salvation. Uh, Psalms 103, 19 through 22, uh, angels are there to, uh, to perform God's word in their mighty and power. Uh, angels have free choice, 2 Peter 2, 4, Jude 6, uh, Job 1, 6 through 12, uh, the sons of God and Satan also comes before God and, and they're aware of what's going on on, the, on this earth. And then going back to Psalms 148, 2 and 5, God created the angels. Now, 
Let's move on to another thing that will help us not only know something about the angels, but something about our future state in the process. And this is where uh, I'm in Luke 20, and the discussion here is that the Sadducees, beginning with verse 27. And the Sadducees had denied there was a resurrection. See, the Jew was looking forward to a resurrection. And he had the same misconception that people teach today. He taught that when the Messiah come, that there was going to be a general resurrection, a bodily resurrection of the just and the unjust. And they looked for all the prophets to be raised up and everything like that. Well, the Sadducees were not a bunch of dodos. Now, we just everybody wants to put the Sadducees down. But the very people that put the Sadducees down pose the same problem the Sadducees were trying to deal with. They said, well, if we're going to be raised up, you know, what about this woman? That she was married to a man and he died. She married his brother and he died and married his brother. And this has gone on. Which one of them is going to have her in the resurrection? Well, that's, that's a good question. Uh, we know that on marriage today, that, that upon death, the other person that's living has the right to remarry. And there would be any number of people that their mate has died and have remarried again. Well, then the question is, uh, that which one, which one, you know, in the re- is going to belong to them in the resurrection? Now, he corrects their misunderstanding of this physical bodily resurrection. At the same time, we see something about, about the angels. He said, uh, verse 33, in the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For the seven all had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For neither can they die anymore, for they are like angels. And are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Well, according to this passage, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are not dead, they're living. They have experienced the resurrection. And his point is that in the resurrection, you're not it's not your physical body that's going to be raised again. But he says that we're going to be like the angels. Well, what are the angels? They're spiritual beings. And the angels don't die. And so he says that uh, we're like the angels. We're sons of the resurrections. The angels don't die. Uh, We won't won't die either. And so it's that spirit. And there's no difference. In other words, the fact that you're male or female in this life has nothing to do with that spiritual state over there. There's there's nothing there having to do with sex because all sex has to do with is reproduction. And there's not going not to be any marrying or giving in marriage at that time. Now, he makes a statement now about uh, God is not the God of the dead but of the living and corrects our understanding of the resurrection. We'll turn over here to Luke 9 and notice the, one of the characters that he mentions. Luke 9 and verse uh, 30, 31. Okay, actually start back at verse 28. Uh, it came about that he took Peter and John and James, went up on the mountain to pray. While he was praying, the appearance of his face became different. His, his clothing became white and gleaming. Two men were talking with him. Okay, here we are, Moses and Elijah. And they appearing in his glory. Notice that says they were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. And they were fully awake. They saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And notice that it makes it clear there when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And then Peter begins to question him and he gets on with what our point now is not what, what, what he's teaching there or anything, but just to notice that Moses has been dead and Elijah's dead. And remember the statement that Jesus made here that in the resurrection, we will be like the angels. And then he says, God's not the God of the dead, but he's the God of living. And he refers him to the statement over here where uh, that he made the statement, let's see, that uh, he spoke to Moses and said, I'm the God of Abram, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac. And then we turn over here and we read that here's Moses, and he's alive, and 
and talking with Jesus, talking with Jesus. So we learn something about the angels there in the sense that we that we learn that we're going to be like them, that they they don't die, their <coughs> spiritual beings. And notice that Moses, uh, how that he understood what was going on. Uh, he had a conversation with Jesus about what was going to take place uh, so far as his crucifixion, and he knew it was going to recognize Moses and Elijah. Apparently, they looked. They had to make their appearance. In other words, they were transfigured, but the appearance had to be such that he recognized and, and he heard their conversation. Isn't that a characteristic of angels that they could manifest themselves in any number of ways, yeah. including as, as human beings. Well, like when uh, when the uh, two angels we read in uh, Genesis 19 and verse 1, the two angels went into Sodom, and Lot met two men. And invited them into the house, and then they warned Lot, and he got out, but they manifested themselves as men. In fact, most of the times when we read of angels manifested themselves here on this earth, that they're manifested as men, and they're perceived at first simply as men. Uh, an angel uh, manifested himself to the father of Samson, and Samson thought it was just a man, and he actually had to prove to Samson that he was an angel. Uh, an angel spoke to Gideon. And again, he had to give proof to Gideon that he was an angel of the Lord. And that, uh, if, you know, and so Gideon wanted signs and he got those signs. But your question, Joe, was how did Peter know that it was Elijah Moses? Mm -hmm. No, he said that, yeah, he would have to real, he would have to recognize their head. How would they know what Moses and Elijah looked like even back, back then? then? How, how would they know? How would See, he had their conversation. <laughs> That what you have is they part. identify themselves in the conversation. Well, obviously, because it, he didn't have any problem with it. In other words, it was just Moses. See, it was Jesus and Moses and Elijah were talking, and they were conversing about the sacrifice that was going to come. And we're given just a small part of the conversation. For the reason I read it from Luke, for example, is that Luke gives us more of the conversation than Matthew does. But you don't have the complete conversation. Does yours say that he did not know what he was saying? No, mine does. But you didn't, you didn't say that? In parentheses, uh, after verse uh, 33, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it says, he did not know what he was not realizing what he was saying. He says that too. Oh, that's Peter. Well, that's Peter. He's not that's realizing Peter. what he was saying. See, when Peter... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. See, when Peter didn't realize, Peter was putting all three of them on a par. Yeah. But he, he was thinking of, see, he still thought of Jesus as just a great prophet and everything and uh, so he was putting, he was going to build three shelters. And he didn't understand what he was saying. And then, in other words, really the purpose of this happening was not for the reasons that we've been talking about. We've been just showing that and using it over here. The purpose was to demonstrate to them that Jesus was superior to Moses and the prophets. And that now he was the one that they were to listen to. And see that when Peter, it's Peter that said he didn't know what he was saying, he equated Moses and the prophets and Jesus. And then he, the, everything faded out and he says, you know, this is my son, you know, hear him. And then when he said, he, they even said that they were not to tell anybody of this vision they've seen until after, you know, his resurrection. Well, see, if they had went out and told the Pharisees that they had seen this and that Jesus was endorsed as being superior to Moses, can you imagine what would have happened? You see, they had, they, had one, they had a lynch mob after him. And all, all the way through there. And so there were a number of times when Jesus gave those apostles information and they were to hold back. And this is one case where they were told, you know, to wait. Does, is that like doing his part? You know, God takes care of things he couldn't take care of, but his time hadn't come yet to right. fulfill his teaching. So he doing what he could do, protecting himself, you know, choosing his common sense. Right. And there were several times when Jesus did that. Uh, in John 6:15, they were going to come by force and take him, and make him king. And in situations like that, there were times when maybe he would heal somebody, and then even uh, command them, "Don't go and you know tell such and such." You know that. Uh, and there were other times he wanted spread, but he had to be aware of the fact that number one, they were looking for a physical king like David to come and reign on this earth, and that they were willing to even come and by force, you know, to make him king and to, and to stand up. You know, Paul, those, those two individuals, those all about providence. You couldn't get, um, you couldn't, you'd be hard-pressed to show an antithesis like that. With Moses, he was denied the opportunity to cross over. Right. 
right? And providentially, he was denied. You know, he had to die. He had to face death and disappointment and all that. And Elijah was about the opposite, right? Went to heaven. Went about tasting death. Right. Right? And providentially, you couldn't get it any further apart than, than Moses' disappointment, and Elijah didn't have to taste that at all. Right. Yeah. But even Moses, although he didn't get to enter it, he knew that he was saved and died saved and everything like that. He knew that that was his punishment for disobeying God. And in fact, it becomes a good example of how that even when we repent of things that we've done wrong, that many times there are still consequences down here in this earth, you know, as a result of it. And so, although Moses pleaded with God, he still was not permitted, you know, to cross on over. But anyway, in this context, in Luke 20, we've seen that uh, the angels are in a superior spiritual state, and that in the resurrection, contrary to the pictures we see of people literally coming out of the graves and bodily type form and all, uh, Jesus said that we'll be as the angels, and then he even says that God's not the God of the dead, but of the living, and then we see Moses and Elijah have been dead all those years and in a conversation with, with Jesus. And so it's our spirit, not our body, that's made an image of God. And our spirit is raised, as far as anything coming out of the ground, uh, even the Ecclesiastic writer come to recognize that uh, it, the body goes back to the dust from which it came, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So there's nothing in that ground but the dust. And that's, and that, that's it. The spirit goes into the Hadean realm, uh, just like, uh, again, the King James translators affect us a little bit here also when they refer to Jesus at his death having gone, gone into hell in Acts 2. But literally, that's Hades. And they put they rendered the word hell there, but it's, it's Hades. Okay, let's see now. We got down through... Okay, we got down through the point of the angels as uh, ministering spirits on our behalf. Jesus' reference to the angels is concerned and caring about those believers in him, Matthew 18 and verse 10. Uh, the angels that will perform his word and they're mighty. Uh, and then we've got had the angels as those that possess, uh, why don't you just take that off? Those that possess uh, free choice. And now what we're going to do is, is come down and go into the Old Testament and note the examples of where some of where God actually promised and then used the examples. And what we're sh showing is that all the way through, as God accomplishes his will through his people, and he says, you do such and such, and I'll do such and such, the way God does this all the time uh, is through the, through the angels and without tampering with anybody's free choice. Okay, Hugh, you want to take uh, Exodus 23 and uh, verse 20 through 23. Exodus uh, 23, 20 through 23. Exodus 23, 20 through 23. Uh -huh. See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion, since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. Okay. Notice as... Moses is uh, told and the children of Israel to go into the land of Canaan and they're going to go in and conquer a land and a people that are mightier than they are but he tells them you go ahead and I'm sending my angel before you and so that all they do and remember that as they go to battle God's going to expect them to do their part but then after they've done their part over and above that, God, and working through the realm of the angels themselves, is going to do the things that they can't do. Now, uh, let's see, Steve, read Numbers 20, uh, 14 through 16. And Tim, while he's doing that, turn to Joshua 10, 6 through 11. Joshua 10, uh, 6 through 11. 
And Barbara, you want to take Isaiah 30 and 30 and 31. Okay, Steve, you got that in Numbers 20. From Kadesh, Moses then sent messengers to the king of Edom. Thus your brother Israel has said, You know all the hardship that has befallen us, that our fathers went down to Egypt, and we stayed in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians treated us and our fathers badly. But when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out from Egypt. Now behold, we are at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Okay. Here he is getting ready to, he wants to pass through Edom. Edom won't let him, but our purpose is simply, again, to notice the angel. That in Exodus 23, he said that the angel will go before you, he's going to lead the way. And now Moses, in looking back, gives credit to the angels for their delivery from the uh, land, land of Egypt itself. All right, now, keep in mind that when we refer to even like the death angel taking the firstborn in all the land of Egypt, uh, from the Egyptian standpoint, you just had all the dead people. And that it was in the, we through Revelation know that God accomplished that uh, through the angel. It's interesting that in some archaeological discoveries that we've got, that, uh, that there is uh, at this time among the Egyptians some statements referring to mourning about a, a tremendous death and things of that nature that took place. And uh, even as they leave Egypt, and go into the land of Canaan. Uh, we have, through our, again, archaeological discoveries, these people uh, writing on tablets about this people they call the Habrim, H-A-B-R-I-M, that have come out of Egypt and are now coming into their land. And they even refer what they did to the Egyptian army, and, and their fear of them is based on what happened in Egypt. And again, Moses lets us know that the angels have led the way, and they've been able to accomplish this with, with the help of the angels themselves. Now. What we have here in Joshua 10 and 6 through 11 is just one example of how the angels did some of the things that they did with the Israelite army and how that on the one hand God doesn't tamper with free choice. The Israelites had to have enough faith to go ahead and obey God in order for God to fulfill his promise. All right, uh, read that, uh, Tim, in Joshua 10, 6 through 11. The Gibeonites then sent word, word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. Gilgal. Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marked up, marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, who defeated them in a great victory at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going to Beth Horon and cut them down all the way to Azka and Makeda. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azka, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky. More of them died from the hailstones that were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Okay. Notice now the uh, the uh, statement that the angel will go before him and lead the way. And here is Moses telling him to go ahead and stand up and fight. And, and so the army is actually mightier than, than the Israelites. And they stand up. And then we read the text and we find out that, uh, that God sends a hailstorm on the enemy. And that actually more of them are killed by the hailstorm than they are that's killed by the, by the army itself. And so this is just one example of how God uses the elements, his control of the elements, to fight with them. But notice again, the Jews, the, or the Israelites at this time, they didn't see any angel or anything like that. They just had the promise. All they saw was the effects. It's just like we, we, we don't see the wind, we see the effects of it. Well, they saw the effects and then they have the word of Moses that God is with you. And see, it would, be, it would be Moses, or Joshua in this case, that would tell the people that the angel has done this. But all they saw was the hail. In other words, it's just pretty convenient that that hailstorm happened at a, at, a, at a right time. All right, again, you can see the importance of foretelling. If it were not for the foretelling process, well, then somebody could come along and say, well, that was just a coincidence. It had a hailstorm at just the right time and all. 
but this is true on a lot of these things that God does. And so the foretelling process would not allow people to attribute that to coincidence or anything else. Well, Isaiah drives this home in Isaiah 48, 3 through 5, when he gives the reason that God always told these events in advance and all, so that when it happened, they wouldn't give credit to chance or to their God or anything, anything of that nature. So when we think of the angels and their providential care today, remember that they didn't see them either on cases like this. They just simply, the effect was there, and the only reason they knew that the angel was the one that accomplished it is because the, the messenger of God told them in the process. Okay, now, oh, by the way, when it says like the Lord threw hailstones, you'll find over and over that God will send his angels to do something, and then some, it'll be used interchangeably. The Lord did something, or the angel did it. Well, the Lord did it through the angel. And it'll be the same thing with people. Uh, you'll read where the Lord did such and such, when in reality it'll be Babylon that did it, or Assyria that did it, or Assyria. But the Lord did it in the sense that God providentially worked things out to do it. And so when the Lord says, I'm going to punish Israel, literally it was Babylon. But God brought things about, and so therefore he took credit for it. Uh, Amos 3 and verse 6 said, Shall evil befall a city, and God not have caused it? In other words, because God providentially is in control, he'll take credit for those things that happen in, in that realm. And so to read that the Lord does something, does not necessarily mean that the Lord himself directly does it. But if he has providentially involved himself, whether it's the use of an angel or the use of people or a use of an agent, then he will just simply take credit for it. Uh, just like you might say, I've done such and such, when in reality, uh, you've, given, uh, in this place, you've given your command to somebody else and they've carried it out, but you just simply say, I've done such and such. And we understand you know, what, you're, what you're talking about with the Bible use in the same way. Okay, now... Another passage, uh, turn over to 2 Kings 19, we're familiar with this one, uh, 35 through 37. Let's see, Barbara, first go ahead and read Isaiah 30 and 31. Uh, I thought too the passage that Tim read, for they went through the, uh, they thought the army that was so much bigger than all, and God said they would defeat them. It reminded me of where he said, ten of you will chase a thousand, thousand. Well, that's a good example. In other words, you read that. And God makes that promise, like in Deuteronomy 28, that as long as you're walking with me, you don't worry about the number of the enemy, that ten of you will chase a multitude, a hundred of you will chase, and he gives a large number, you know, everything like that. And, the, and, the answer, and then he says, on the other hand, it'll be reversed if you're not with me. Well, then you ask the question, how can that be? How can it be that if I'm walking with God, that ten of us can chase a thousand, and if I'm not walking with them, that ten of them can chase a thousand of us? And that's a statement that God makes, you know, in, in, uh, in Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 20, 26. Well, we can see now that you've either got the angels far against you, you know. And so that's a good example of, of God with them and how that with a smaller number they come out on top. Also, again, notice how their faith was involved. There wouldn't have been any angels doing anything except they had enough faith and, and to go ahead and obey and do their part. In fact, later on, when they did not conquer all the land of Canaan, it was because of their lack of faith. In other words, the angels just would not go ahead and do it. They had to go ahead and do their part, and then as they carried out their part, God, through the angels, did his part. And again, to me, at least what that says to me, is in, I'm in the same boat, that God, God's going to do his part when I do mine. But God, his will... Uh, is to work through us here on this earth. And, and we're going to have to have the faith to go ahead and act even when he asks us to do something that might uh, seem to pose you some threat in some way. And to have the same attitude that uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had, you know, that our God is able uh, to deliver us. He may or may not choose, but we know he's able and we're not, we're not really worried about it. We can be like uh, the prophet in 2 Kings 6 and know that and God's got all kinds of angels at his disposal and he can use them as he so desires. Okay, read that in Daniel 30 now. You mean Isaiah 30? Yeah, Isaiah 30. Isaiah 30, 30, and 31. And the Lord will cause his voice of the heart to be heard, and the descending of his arm to be seen in fierce anger, and in the flame of a consuming fire, in cloudburst, downpour, and hailstones. For at the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be ter terrified when he strikes with the rod. Okay, notice again the parallel thing that in Joshua they go to battle and they said the Lord killed more with hailstones than what they had killed. 
And then in Isaiah, he's he's getting ready to to do a job on Assyria, and he mentions again that the anger of the Lord can be displayed displayed in the elements, and that God, in other words, through the elements, God was going to work against Assyria. And remember, over and over we read in the scriptures that uh, droughts happen because of the will of God. God is in control. And uh, and re- keep in mind, a lot of times, even with the elements, you would not even have to have God interfering with nature in any way. God's foreknowledge would permit the use of nature on his side. I mean, just his foreknowledge of it, it would, would permit him to actually use nature in, in every way. Okay, uh, in uh, 2 Kings 19, 35-37. Did I do that to anybody? Yeah. Okay. Oh, I need it. All right, uh, Jack, did you have that? 2 uh, Kings. Uh, okay, 2 Kings 19, 35-37. And then Louise, uh, 2 Kings 6, 15-18. 2 Kings 19, 35 through 37. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. So Samachra, king of Syria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And it came about as he was worshiping in the house of that his God, that Ashmach, and something killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Arath, and his son became king in his place. All right, now notice in context there, we, Sennacherib has encompassed, that's of Assyria, has encompassed uh, Jerusalem, and in our archaeological discoveries, we, we've got the exact statement that, that Sennacherib's own historian recorded. It's on a rock, you know, all carved in, that he was bragging that he had Hezekiah pinned up like a bird in a cage. Well, Isaiah was a prophet, and it, it's recorded that Isaiah said, don't even be afraid of him. Pardon me, he's not coming into the city. And so then we read that an angel of the Lord smote his army, and 185,000 of them died, and then he went back home and was killed himself. And so we have an angel of the Lord uh, recorded as destroying his armies. All right, now here's an uh, interesting thing. I, I went back and dug this book up. I've used it several times, but hadn't uh, dug it up in years. This book here is called Man's Religions, okay? The author of it is not a believer in, in, in uh, Christianity or anything like that. It's a secular book, and it's a study of Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, and Christianity. And here, the, the title on this is Judaism, the Discovery of One God. And it shows they're coming to a knowledge of one God and all. What was interesting to me, because years back, I took this, used this book as a college course that I had. And this was when I was in the process of just really getting into a serious study of evidences. And one of the things that was amazing me as I began to study Christian evidences is how many times that even unbelievers and their works acknowledge the effect of something that happened and the historicity of it. And sort of like the Pharisees who would see a miracle and say, well, you do it by the power of the devil. But they're also telling us, hey, he did a miracle. You know, we'll make up our own mind where the power comes from. And, and then the secular works of the Jews, like in the Gemara, refer to the fact that Jesus and the apostles were so successful because of this, these works of sorcery that they did, but they acknowledge that they did those things. All right, now, in this section here, he deals with Isaiah, and, and he, even, he even gives the accurate date, points out that Isaiah starts to prophesy about 740 B.C. And then he deals with this thing of Isaiah telling Hezekiah to stand up, and he quotes Isaiah saying to Hezekiah, your strength is in faith. And then he says, in giving advice to Judah's kings, this was his constant declaration. Thus, when the northern kingdom had been destroyed by the Assyrians, 722 B.C., and the Assyrians were camped before Jerusalem under the mighty general Sennacherib. Well, see, he's getting his information from secular history. He sent panic-stricken King Hezekiah, who besought him to call upon Yahweh, assurances that the city would not be taken. Now, notice his statement here. His prophecy was wondrously fulfilled. The Assyrians suddenly raised the siege. 
All right, what he's acknowledging there is that as a matter of historical fact, even from the Assyrian standpoint, they had Hezekiah pinned up like a bird in a cage. And then for some reason, they lifted the siege. Okay? And he said Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled. Well, then he's got a little asterisk. And down here at the bottom of the page, he says, according to tradition, a plague struck them. But there is evidence that Sennacherib accepted a heavy ransom to withdraw his forces. All right, now when he says, according to tradition, a plague struck them, that is the record of the Assyrian historian, that, uh, that his army was killed that night, and, and, they, the only, and they attributed it to a plague that struck them. All right, now notice now he doesn't want to accept that, because you've got Isaiah's prophecy being fulfilled in a, in a miraculous way. But he has to acknowledge the fact that, uh, that they did lift the siege, and there has to be some reason for it. Well, see, he's really got a problem because the Jewish historian says that an angel of the Lord smote 185,000 in one night. But the Assyrian historian, that was a long way from being a believer in the true God, recorded that a plague hit him. Well, that was, he didn't, obviously, he didn't see the angel, but he saw the results of the angel, and he just attributed it to a plague. Well, a plague was what the, a plague is what the angel used. All right, now, he says, so here, he says, but we've got evidence that Sennacherib accepted a ransom to withdraw his forces. All right, what his evidence is, is not from the Jewish historian, and it's not from the Assyrian historian. But his evidence was that there were times in history, and there were times in Israelite history, where an army came against somebody, and the king paid a bribe, you know, agreed to pay the amount of money, the ransom and all, and then they went ahead and left them alone. Well, there were several Israelite kings in their history that paid bribes, you know, and gave money out, and then the, the enemy would leave them alone for a period of time, and then they would come back. So I'm saying his evidence is something that has definitely happened, but in no sense is there any record of it happening here from either the Assyrian or the Israelite standpoint. Now, the originally Israelite historian records that they stood there right to the end and the death of the Assyrian army, and the Assyrian historian records that they stood there and that a plague hit the army and they died. But what it shows you is that a problem that even an unbelieving historian has in acknowledging that Isaiah said things that came about, and then even secular historians bear record of it. So what he has to do is try to come up with a logical explanation. Well, so that's when that, he said that they were paid off. Right. Uh -huh. I'm saying that was his, there, there's no evidence of that. The evidence, the, the statement from the Assyrians and the Jews agreed that the army was destroyed and all. But what he acknowledges, that, they, that yes, it happened, and they did lift the siege. But he can't accept the miraculous. And so then what he has to do, he has to say, we have evidence of such and such. Well, his evidence is no real evidence. It's just the fact that that kind of thing has happened, you know, in other, in other situations. Well, what becomes real interesting is that when you read prophecy after prophecy and event after event in the Old Testament, and over and over now, as a result of the archaeological discoveries that are being made, historians are coming to recognize that, yes, this event happened. And then the guy that is going to remain an unbeliever is forced to try and come up with some explanation for it. Well, see, you can accept maybe one explanation. But then it just reaches a point where isn't this guy kind of straining himself, that he constantly is acknowledging that, yes, it happened, yes, it happened, yes, it happened, but now I believe this could explain it, and this could explain it, and this could explain it, and this goes on all through the process. The well, example is when the darkness came over the earth when Jesus was crucified. Yeah. And they acknowledge yes, that did happen, but then they try to explain it by saying, well, there was an eclipse. Right. That's a real good example that uh, uh, in a letter that we actually have uh, that's in the British Museum dating back in the first century and uh, you have a, a debate between a Christian and a pagan and the, the uh, pagan is saying that, that uh, this darkness that came over the land was because of an eclipse. Well, see, the Passover is always the time of the full moon. And the Jew is arguing with him, the Christian, and saying, no, it was the time of the full moon. But the point is that the, the pagan is acknowledging to us that darkness came over the land for that period. He's not arguing with that. But he's searching for an explanation. And the interesting thing is as unbelievers now, they're in a real dilemma. I mean, if you're going to be an intellectual unbeliever, 
See, for years they could argue from the standpoint of science. They could just say, I don't believe it. Such and such is the explanation. And you didn't have all these archaeological discoveries. Now we've come along and we can say that this event actually happened. So then what they've got to do is search for some explanation other than the one in the Bible where God was involved in some direct way to bring, to bring it about. So they really, I mean, they've got them. And the result is that it's interesting again to me that among scholars that are one time, were one time liberal, more and more liberal